0: Amen, church. It's good to be with you. I think we have uh, some some visitors, family of the Gupta's here. You all know Joel, of course, but uh, they've got their niece and nephew and someone else I didn't meet. Who's who's this? He is mom. mom. Awesome. he's mom. Wonderful. <laughs> Welcome. so so glad to have you with us and be a part of this fellowship, this time together. So we are embarking uh, in through the Gospel of John, and uh, we're going to turn a corner. Last week we finished up the uh, Jesus, what's often called the High Priestly Prayer in John 17, and uh, he's finished now his farewell discourse, his 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 teaching, his preparation for the eleven uh, to get them ready for his departure. And now the time for talking is, is over. Uh, Jesus uh, is going to be arrested. And like, like a wave that gradually swells and builds and is about to crest. I don't know if you, we have any surfers here. I did a little, little, little bit of bodyboarding uh, in my, my time. But uh, you, you see that wave from, from far off, you know, building. And the swell just kind of builds and grows and so here, uh, this, this wave has been swelling and it's about to crest. Uh, and this moment has been, has been building from the very beginning of John's gospel with John the Baptist declaring Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, That sacrificial lamb who would die for the sin of the world. But this swelling wave began way before the beginning of John's gospel. It goes all the way back to the dawn of human history. It was, it was in another garden where the promise of a Savior was first given. And now it's fitting that this wave that began swelling in that garden will now crest in another. And it's in moments like these... That in the eyes of the world, it would seem that Jesus has been backed into a corner. He has nowhere to hide. The game is up. And it appears that the religious leaders are finally getting their way. But Jesus will use these final moments with his disciples in a very dark and hostile scene, both literally and figuratively, it's dark out, it's nighttime, but he will use this dark scene to reveal to them the truth of the reality that is at play in these moments. Kind of like, remember as a kid, you're trying to go to sleep at night, and you think you see a monster or something in your room, and Mom and dad come in, they flip the light on, and it's just your coat hanging on the door or something silly like that, right? Uh, So Jesus, the light of the world, is going to flick the lights on in this dark garden and reveal to us the reality of what is truly going on here. So let's discover this together. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me to John 18. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. If you need to use a pew Bible, Uh, You're welcome to do that. You'll find today's text on page 1074, and once you're there, if you're able, I invite you to please stand with me out of reverence for God's word and follow along with me as I read. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, This was to to fulfill the word that had been spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost, not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, your word is perfect, reviving the soul and able to make us simple people wise. Your simple people are gathered now around your word. We ask that you would make us indeed wise and revive our souls as Christ is exalted in the preaching of his word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So like I said earlier, Jesus has spent uh, chapters 13 through 16 preparing his disciples for this moment, for his departure, and as the capstone of this teaching, he, he prays in chapter 17 for his disciples, including you and I. We looked at that last week, and it revealed really the, the heart of Jesus, As he prays, we got a glimpse at his prayer list, the things that are important to him that he prays for. Uh, And at the top of that list, of course, is his own glory. And also he prays for our unity uh, as his people. But now the time for talk has come to an end. He takes his disciples to a garden just on the other side of the brook Kidron, just outside of Jerusalem. And things will now escalate and the cross is only hours away. And here in this scene, as, as Judas comes, having really exchanged the light of the world for man made light of torches and lanterns, the light of the world will reveal in this darkness four realities about himself that he gives his eleven and to us to give us great comfort and to give us great hope. When things seem out of control and even painful in our own lives, these realities are also true in our own Gethsemane experiences. So the first reality that Jesus reveals in the dark garden And this scene is his sovereign control over the situation. So that's the first thing. So notice in verse 3 that Judas arrives in the garden having exchanged, again, the light of the world for man-made torches and lanterns. And he comes with the Jewish temple police, really. uh, And the chief priests, uh, along with a detachment of Roman soldiers. So he's got... You know, the, the mall cops from the temple. And then he's got, like, the, the Roman soldiers now, okay? Uh, so he's got a detachment of Roman soldiers. It's interesting, isn't it, how these two groups of people, the Romans and the Jews, who uh, traditionally hate each other, are now united in their hatred toward Jesus. And they're coming for him together in this unholy alliance This is a picture of of the world united in hatred against Jesus. Now understand that this detachment of soldiers would have numbered around at least 200 men and with torches and weapons. And we know this because in in verse uh, 12, we learn that there's a captain among them and a captain would have been over at least 200 men. And they're likely there for crowd control Right, in the event that someone as popular as Jesus and, and if he's a dangerous insurrectionist, right, there could be some conflict. So they come prepared with weapons. And it appears that they're expecting perhaps a manhunt. You know, they've got lots of lanterns and torches. They're expecting perhaps to have to search for Jesus hiding somewhere in this dark garden. Why else would they have all those lanterns and torches? But now look at verse 2. John tells us that this is a place where Jesus often met with his disciples. And it was known to Judas. So think about this for a moment. Jesus goes to what is perhaps one of the first places Judas is going to look for him and expect to find him. So Jesus didn't select this location as a place for hiding he, he chose this location as a place to be found. And then in verse four, Jesus, uh, G, is Jesus hiding or, or, or is, he, uh, is he trying to evade this party? Because no, in verse uh, four, we read that Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He came forward and said to them, who do you seek? Jesus wasn't hiding he, he didn't wait for them to find them. He came to them. John says, John says it's, all, it's almost as if Jesus was in, waiting there to ambush them. You know, he, he's waiting for them to come, and he, he comes forward and approaches them. And then Jesus wasn't naive. He knew what was going to happen. He knew all that was going to happen to them and came forward Anyway. And then far from being, inter- uh, from being interrogated, we see Jesus as the one asking all the questions. He's the one asking, you know, who is it that you seek? And what Jesus displays here is that far from being surprised by these dark events, that he is in fact sovereign over them. In control of every moment. And remember what Jesus said in John 10, 18. No one takes it from me. He's talking about his life. He's the good shepherd who will lay down his life. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And this is what we're seeing here. And this reality should should be such a great comfort to us today because in in the dark events of this hour, uh, Jesus is in complete control. And if that is true then, it's true now for the dark events of our lives, in our hours of suffering and trial, maybe your marriage is falling apart. Or in our world today, maybe your job is in jeopardy because you refuse to lie and use the wrong pronouns. Or maybe you're a student and you're getting bullied for your faith. If Jesus is in control in the dark events of his life, then he's also in control in the dark events that happen in your lives. And this is what Joseph learned in Genesis. After being sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused of wrongdoing and and imprisoned, And then forgotten by his friends? In the end, Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Jesus not only knew all that would happen to him, but he also knew the full plan and purpose in it, in it all. To be the savior of the world. Do you believe that your suffering and trials are known to God and that he has a plan for them? To use even the evil done to you for your good? Because he does. And this is what Paul teaches in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So this is the first reality that Jesus displays here in the garden that he's in complete control if he's in complete control of these events he's in complete control of all of your events for your good and for his glory. Now next Jesus will reveal the reality of his identity. So we've got the reality of his sovereign control, <clears throat> excuse me, and now the reality of his divine identity. Look with me at verses four, uh, five and six. After Jesus asks them who they seek and they answer Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus tells them, I am he. Then John says that they drew back and fell to the ground. Judas, the temple police, the 200 Roman soldiers all draw back and fall to the ground. Let's unpack this a bit. First, understand that When Jesus says, I am he, there there is no article for he in the Greek here. It's provided by the translators to make it more readable. But Jesus is literally saying in Greek, ego ami, I am. And this is the Greek translation of the divine name that God gave to Moses all the way back in Exodus 3, when God told Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, Moses asked God, if the people ask who sent me, who, what should I tell them? And God tells Moses to say to them, I am has sent you. The divine name. This is simply the verb to be. And what's fascinating about this claim is that Uh, it's, it's, It's so incredible. It says something so incredible about God. You see, whenever we use the verb to be, we have to include something along with it. I am this or I am that or I am because of something. But God never does. There is no beginning or ending to God. He is not dependent on anything for his being. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Everything and everyone depends entirely on him for their being. We've seen Jesus use this name before in chapter 8 when he said that before Abraham was I am. You remember this, right? And what happened next? The Jews knew what he was saying. They drew back and they picked up stones to stone him to death for blasphemy. They knew exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. But why is it that here they, they, they draw back and fall to the ground, but in chapter eight, they pick up stones to throw at him? Especially 200 battle-tested Roman soldiers. These are tough guys. Jesus, I think what's happening here is that in the moments just before his arrest, I think Jesus chose to flex his muscles a little bit and just reveal a glimpse of his true divine identity, his glory. And now, as you read through the scriptures, you'll, you'll notice this theme of, of what happens to people when they realize that they're in the very presence of God. People can't stay on their feet in the presence of God, their legs turn to jello. Everyone loses their footing in the presence of God. You see this in Ezekiel 1 when he sees his vision of God, the prophet says he fell on his face in the presence of God. Or in 2nd Chronicles 5, just after the dedication of Solomon's temple when it's when it's filled with the glory of God, we're told that the priests could not stand to enter and minister This is what happens when you're in the presence of something or someone infinitely greater than you. You lose your footing. You collapse to the ground. And so here I think what knocks even these tough guy Roman soldiers flat on their backs is that they've been given just a glimpse. Just a glimpse of who Jesus truly is. The Bible says that one day we will all be brought into the presence of God on judgment day. And no one who rejects Jesus will be able to stand. The problem is that all of humanity has rejected Jesus, including you and me. Psalm 130, verse 3, says this plainly. If if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? So we're left with a problem That needs a solution. What's the solution? The solution is the next reality that Jesus reveals here in the garden. And the reality is is this, that we need a faithful savior. Look at verse 8, where Jesus tells the soldiers that if it's him they seek, let these men go. You see, if Jesus was a dangerous insurrectionist, then the protocol would have been to arrest him along with all of his followers and this must have been what they were expecting to do. Why else would they bring 200 Roman soldiers? They want to gather up the whole lot, get the paddy wagon, and put them all in, and drive them away. And now when, when Jesus tells them to let these men go, this is really interesting. This is a phrase in Greek that has some irony to it, or maybe not. Because it basically means this, forgive these men and take me instead of them. It's what this phrase literally means. Forgive these men and take me instead of them. This is substitution language. Now down at the end of our passage in verse 11, Jesus says that he must drink the cup the Father has given him. This cup is an Old Testament metaphor for God's perfect justice. It's his judgment and his punishment poured out on sin. And on Judgment Day, all evildoers will be made to drink this cup. Now, many in our world today ignore or deny the reality of a coming Judgment Day. But think about this. This is something we should be thankful for. If your blood truly boils at the thought of injustice in our world against the poor, vulnerable in our society, being exploited, taking an advantage of, then, then you should hope that there is a judgment day because it means that all evil and all evildoers will get what they deserve. No one gets away with anything. In reality, there is a judgment day and all evil will be reckoned for. The problem, the problem is that if God punishes all evil, then he has to punish us too. That's the problem we're left with. And so this is very good news for us that Jesus says that he will drink the cup because he's saying that on the cross, all the punishment of God for our sins will fall on him instead. At the cross, our judgment day comes early when the punishment you deserve falls on Jesus so that you can stand on judgment day. And this is what happens to John in Revelation 1. He has a vision of Jesus and all of his glory. And in verse 17, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But, you see that? That's great. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus preaches the gospel to John right there. He says, fear not, it touches him. Come to your feet, John. You can stand now. You have nothing to be afraid of. I died and I rose again, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I, I, I own them, I, I rule over them, and death has no claim on you now. John is mowed over by the glory of God as though dead, but John says that Jesus touched him. While Jesus' glory knocks us on our backs, his mercy and grace on the cross and the empty tomb lifts us to our feet. And we don't have to fear judgment day so long as we've been united to Christ by faith, trusting him to be our savior. Now, all traditional religion would say this, that there's a judgment day coming, so you better be good, right? It's coming. You better be good because it's coming. That's traditional religion. But what the gospel, what the Christian gospel says is there's a judgment day. There's a a judgment day and Christ has took our judgment for us. So, we can stand on our feet and be accepted. And we can look forward to that day with great hope and not with trembling and fear. Now, when you truly believe this, it will change everything about how you live now. Because if you believe that Jesus drank the cup of judgment for you so that you can stand before God one day and not lose your footing, then you will also not lose your footing now in this life when you're insulted. And when you're wronged or when you're criticized by others, believing this frees you because if you know that God accepts you because of Jesus, then you can truly say, Who cares what other people think of me? Who cares if our culture thinks that I'm on the wrong side of history? Who cares if I lose my job, if I refuse to endorse someone else's lie and use a wrong pronoun? I'm not on trial anymore. Because of Jesus, the verdict is in, and I'm not guilty. If Jesus accepts me, and I know that I will stand on my feet before him one day, then this will help me and you and us, all of us who have faith in Jesus. It will help us to stand today. Now, if you're here and you don't believe there's a Judgment Day, then then when you're wrong, what other options do you have? Especially if you believe justice is not being served there's, there's no guarantee that wrong will ever be made right and you're, you're, you're left to take matters into your own hands and you feel deep down in your heart that you need to get even and you lose your footing. You become bitter. You become an angry person. If you know that you'll be standing on judgment day though, that will keep you standing. That will keep you standing in the here and now amidst whatever trials and suffering uh, this life has for you. But of course, we don't always do this perfectly, do we? We we do still struggle to stay on our feet. We know the gospel in our heads, right? And we, we struggle often, though, to work it out into our hearts and, and to live it out in our day-to-day lives. Anyone there with me? Yeah? So, if this describes you, there's more good news in our passage. It's here in this, these final words, it's this reality, this reality, this final reality, the fourth one is that Jesus is a patient teacher. He's a patient teacher. Look at Peter's actions in verse 10. He perceives that the situation is getting out of control, and so he tries to take matters into his own hands. Peter thinks that his biggest problem is that they're going to take Jesus away from him. And so he whips out his sword and he clumsily lops off the the ear of the high priest's servant. I don't know a better example of zeal without knowledge than this. And you might expect that after spending three years with Jesus in his gospel master class, having a front row seat, that Peter would have known better. And there's great comfort here for us when we struggle to live out the gospel because look at what you don't see Jesus doing here. He doesn't turn to the soldiers and say, you know what, I've changed my mind. You could have this one. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say, how can I possibly die for someone who's, who's going to deny me and is get every, getting everything wrong up, in, up until the final moments of my death? He's getting everything that I'm about wrong. Look at what Jesus does instead. He's patient with Peter. He basically says, okay, Peter, let's sit down. Let's go over the gospel one more time. Think about your biggest problem. It's not losing me. You have bigger problems, Peter. Problems that you can never solve by taking matters into your own hands. Put your sword away, Peter. Remember, my kingdom won't advance by taking up the sword. It will only advance if I come under it. I have to drink this cup for you. The temple of my body must be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. I have to be that grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies to give life to many. He's reminding Peter of the gospel. This is this is a patient and loving teacher here. And let this, let this truth just captivate your hearts and wash over you in this moment right now that no amount of your own stupidity will stop Jesus from loving you. And no amount of your failure to live out the gospel in your day-to-day lives will ever stop Jesus from loving you. This is more truth that will keep you on your feet in your day-to-day lives no matter what. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are sovereignly in control, that your identity is that of God in the flesh, a faithful Savior, and a patient teacher. May these truths keep us on our feet in this life and in the life to come. Father, I pray that should there be any here today who are are unsure of whether they will be standing on Judgment Day or not, that you would open their hearts to understand and know their need for Jesus who drank the cup for them. Father, I pray that should there be any here today who live in fear of that day, God, that you would transform their hearts and cause them to look forward to that day with great longing and expectation. We don't need dead religion. We need Jesus, who died and rose again, to pay for our sin. And God, we trust him today to forgive us that we might stand now in the life to come. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.